reminds us that what we see of the godless often isn't the whole picture. What we see of the ungodly often looks attractive. And boy, they make an effort to make us think that it is. But at the end, if not before then, God will cause them to answer for their sin, for their rebellion, and their end will be miserable. Far better that we stand with God, that we walk with Him, that we rest in His truth. And that is a big part of the lesson that we have today from uh, the second half of 2 Peter 2. We're going to read starting... uh, We're going to read starting in verse 4 so that we can see the context, but we're going to focus on verses 12 through 22. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment." And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, And mists driven before a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it, or after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Amen. Church of God, 
beloved in Christ, Satan hates those who love the Lord. And he is not picky about how he causes us to suffer. He's not shy about playing dirty. If it'll cause pain for the people of God, or if it will rob God of even the smallest part of his glory, Satan's all about that. Now last week, we saw how our God is discerning in how he judges men. He is entirely able to rescue the godly from the trials of this world, even as he keeps the wicked for the day of judgment. But that assurance comes to us in the context of truth. If you recall back at the start of this chapter and the end of the last, we saw the contrast between two radically different sources of knowledge, of understanding. On the one hand, God commended to us the sure and trustworthy counsel of Scripture. But at the same time, Satan seeks to lead us astray by the countless false counselors of this age. And those false counselors with their lies, they lead men to destruction. That's what he wants us to see today. It matters... What you believe. It matters whose teaching you take hold of. Those who believe the truth from God can expect God to keep and rescue them. What a blessing that is. What a comfort in this world filled with sorrow. But those who turn to the lie, those who embrace heresy... Embrace their own destruction. That is the warning of this text. And it's an important lesson, essential lesson, because we live in an age and a place where heresy runs rampant. Countless are they who call themselves believers, who claim to have faith, who exalt themselves as leaders, but who teach lies that stand in direct conflict with the word of God. Heresy. Understand that word well. In its broadest sense, heresy is anything that stands in contrast with the truth from God. Now, there's small h heresy, errors. To some extent, we all, at some point or another, believe in that small h heresy. Because we all make mistakes, we all make errors in what we believe. Now, they're bad, they're wrong, we should try to avoid even those smaller errors... But we understand that we're going to misunderstand things at times. But what we're focused on is the big H heresy. The heresies that lead us away from God. The heresies that ultimately are incompatible with salvation. Heresy isn't just something that afflicted the ancient church back in the days of Athanasius and the other church fathers. Today... Churches that claim to be reformed, preachers and teachers who are well-spoken and convincing, some among these embrace and teach heresy of the worst kind. And Peter says, if you follow them, you walk in the path of destruction. So that's the theme we have to consider this morning. God reveals the destruction brought by those who embrace heresy. 
And as we consider the destruction that will be brought upon those who embrace heresy, we'll see first the character of the heretics themselves, and then the destruction that comes as a result of their lies. So first, the character displayed by the heretic. He starts in verse 12 with a summary of the heretic's nature. Now, these folks believe wrongly, and they teach that which is wrong, and so always they act wrongly. The first thing he shows us here, you can't embrace theological lies without it affecting your behavior. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you can tell the false teachers by their fruit, by the way that they live, by the way they behave. Wrong belief always results in wrong behavior, always. And that leads to destruction. Three times in verse 12, Paul uses, or Peter uses the Greek words for destruction or to be destroyed. He wants us to see clearly that heretics, in embracing the lie, embrace their own destruction. They cannot escape God's justice for denying His truth. In fact, Peter says, they were born to be caught and destroyed. The whole of their lives has been the whole of their lives has been devoted to heaping up the destruction of judgment. But that's not to say that these folks are outwardly repulsive. Outwardly, heretics often appear to be upright and respectable. Many of them are well-spoken and well-dressed. They use logic and reason as they debate with you. They're quite personable. I remember um, writing a, a paper when I was in seminary. Uh, we were supposed to write a paper on a heresy. And so I picked one that was current, the teacher of which was a retired minister in the CRC. It was kind of interesting. It's not too often that you can run your definition of a heresy past the originator. But I did. Talked to him on the phone. I contacted him by email, talked to him on the phone, said, I disagree with everything you stand for, but I'd like to make sure that I'm defining it well. And he appreciated that. And you know what? He was the nicest guy. He was so friendly. He was, he was this grandpa-like guy. You just wanted to sit and have coffee with him. And he was teaching pure poison. And that's what these folks are like. They blaspheme in matters of which they are ignorant. They blaspheme. They, they speak lies that offend the God of truth. They don't understand. They don't truly, at heart, understand God and His ways. They don't, they don't grasp how God created all things. They don't wrestle with the reality that God turns all things for the good of His people. They're unwilling to acknowledge that God is truly sovereign, truly good, and truly just, and yet they speak ill of Him and of His ways. That's wicked. That's worthy of God's judgment. And then Peter, in verse 13 and 14, he shows us their heart, that they're insatiable in their passion for pleasure. The cost is not something they consider. They suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And they understand especially in the dark of night, they understand that the cost for their sin will be high. But they love their sin, they love their momentary pleasure more than they fear the hurt. And so they don't care what other people think. You know, most, 
most folks, they reserve their sinful deeds for night so that they can be covered by the, the darkness. But these folks, they revel in the daytime. They're proud of their sin. They have eyes, he says, that are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Now, on the one hand, that means that they're eager to commit adultery. Their eyes are filled with it, you know. They're, they're hanging out at the strip clubs. They're filling their phone with porn. They're always turning to that which is wicked and evil. But at the same time, their eyes are filled with adultery against God. They're called to serve Him and to serve Him alone. But instead, they're turning to all these false gods they've made for themselves. The false gods of, of lust. The false gods of, of uh, profit and of power and of reputation and of pleasure. They fill their eyes with it. In fact, he says their hearts are trained in greed. The word for trained there is the word that you would use to describe an Olympic athlete preparing for competition. They're single-minded, they're devoted, they're focused on greed, on covetousness, on building up their sin and their rebellion. These folks are committed to the lies that offend God. They train themselves in wanting more and more and more and more. Passionate about having more. And yet even so, we find these heretics among the saints because the evil of their hearts, they're they're skilled at hiding it. They're skilled at justifying it. They're skilled at camouflaging the evil that that lives within them. Peter says they, they feast with you. Especially in the ancient world. That, that implies an intimacy. These heretics are within the church. They're members of the people of God. From within the church, they entice unsteady souls. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But, but understand that they, they find those who are wrestling with doubts, those who don't really understand the fullness of the faith, those who are struggling with their sin or with their guilt, and they latch on to them. They lead them astray. They take those who are tottering and they knock them over. And therefore, Peter says, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. They're deceptive. They lead people astray from the truth. They lead them out of the path of life and into the path of death. And that makes them blots and blemishes. The word there for blemishes is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I say often used because in the law of Moses, blemishes is a word we often confront. Because repeatedly, often, God reminds the Israelites, you may not bring to me an offering that has any blemish. It's unholy. It's broken. You wouldn't eat that. Don't give it to me. And he says of the sons of Aaron, the offspring of the house of Aaron, no man who has a blemish, some defect, some disability, no man who has a blemish may serve him as priest because that blemish represents unholiness. It represents imperfection, and only those who are perfect in their holiness are welcome before God. But these folks, these folks reveling in their sin, passionate about their, their pleasures, leading astray those who are weak and unsteady, they are blemishes. And that tells us the character 
that lives within them. When God looks upon a Christian, young people understand this, when God looks upon a Christian, someone who's truly trusting in Christ, he doesn't see all your sins. He doesn't see you characterized by the defilement of what you've done because you trust in Christ. His blood has cleansed you from all your sin and defilement. His righteousness has been imputed to you. So God looks on you and he sees the perfect holiness of Christ. But he looks on them and he sees blemishes because they're not in Christ. They know when to stand and, and, and sit. They know what words to speak when they're among the people of God. But they are not in Christ. They are not trusting Christ. And so they are blemishes on the body of Christ. That's because these heretics are disciples not of Christ but of Balaam. Kids, you remember the story of Balaam, right? As Israel was coming out of the wilderness toward the promised land, the king of Moab got pretty nervous. He saw what they had done to the other nations that stood against them. And he didn't want Moab destroyed that way. So he went and he found Balaam, who was a prophet, but not of Israel. And he said, I want you to curse this people that are coming against me in the name of their God, because he knew that he was a prophet of their, of their God. And Balaam warned him up front. He said, you know what, I can only say what God lets me say. I can't go beyond that. And having said that, he went with them. Now, if he meant what he said, that would have been fine, but his heart was not right. He said he would only say what God commanded, but he was looking for a loophole. He wanted to please Balak, king of Moab, more than he wanted to please God. He wanted the riches of the world rather than the riches of heaven. And so God stopped him, warned him in a particularly amazing way. His donkey, a speechless animal, turned and rebuked him with human speech. Because his heart was not right. And because he was rebuked, he spoke only what God would allow him to speak. Speaking over the people, not curses, but blessing. But nonetheless, he still was not right at heart with the Lord. Because we also learn concerning Balaam that he taught Balak how to lead them astray, how to lead Israel astray, how to set temptations before them with sex and parties, basically. Uh, Revelation 2 tells us that. And these folks, that's what they're doing. They, again, know how to fit in. They know how to look like God's people. But they desire not the glory of God, but the praise of mere men. So they put on a good show, but privately they lead men away from God. Like Balaam... Their heart is not right, and so like Balaam, they will be shamed. Even beasts of burden, even the creation itself will call them out for their sin. But meanwhile, many will be tempted by them and led astray. So we, brothers and sisters, must be watchful. Remember, they look good. They seem respectable. They can act all grandfatherly and trustworthy but their hearts are wrong 
And you know their hearts are wrong because they desire what God hates. They promote what God condemns. They stand opposed to what God teaches in His sure and trustworthy Word. They're predators of the weak and the unstable. Some of these predators, their main goal is to explain to you why God's Word doesn't really mean what it says it means. They love to do that. Oh, I know it says that, but, but you know, if we look in the Greek or the Hebrew, it doesn't really mean what it says here at all. The writers of Scripture knew nothing of this kind of temptation, of this kind of desire. That's all new. And so Scripture doesn't address that. At, and that's a lie. It leads people astray. And others, they're seeking simply to pursue the passions of the flesh. Lust is what consumes them. Drunkenness is what defines them. Power or praise or riches, that's what they live for. And it leads them to lead others in rebellion, redefining God's word, nullifying God's grace, neutering Christ's kingship. As a result, heresy, destructive lies, are promoted contrary to God's word. Brothers and sisters, we must never ignore or excuse, or allow that in Christ's church, ever. Because those who follow those lies, follow their own destruction. And that's what we see in the second place. The first half focuses on the character of the heretics. Starting in verse 17, the emphasis falls on the destruction that they bring. The destruction wrought by the heretic. Verse 17 tells us, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's serious. Several times. For instance, in Matthew 22, verse 13. In Matthew 25, verse 30. Jesus says that those who are rejected by God, those who are cast out of the kingdom, are cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. Earlier in this chapter... We heard that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Darkness is the absence of light, but God is light and He dwells in light unapproachable. So if darkness is reserved for you, then what He's saying is you are to be cast out from God and from all of His goodness. What a terrible warning. But why? Why such harsh judgment? Listen, these folks come to weak Christians to folks who doubt, to folks who who are just barely hanging on. They offer them comfort and refreshment, but they deliver despair. That's what the start of verse 17 means. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. In the arid land of the ancient Near East, springs give water that is scarce, and essential. People would plan their journeys on the basis of the springs that they would hit. They would go from spring to spring to spring. But if you were on one of those journeys and you came to that spring, you're eager for it, you're waiting for it, your, your water jug is just about empty, and you get there and you look in the pool and nothing but dry sand. All of a sudden your hope turns to despair. Your eager anticipation falls flat. And we see basically the same thing in the second image. 
A better rendering is found in the New King James where it says they're clouds carried by a tempest. As I said, that land is arid. Every drop of water is precious, so they would pray for the rain to come and water their land and and provide for their crops. And so when you saw clouds on the horizon, you rejoiced. Those clouds held the promise of of water for your parched fields. Those clouds brought the promise of, of crops that would feed your family for the coming year. But then the storm winds come and they blow the clouds away before they can water the land. And suddenly your hope turns to hopelessness. Your joy turns to grief. And that is what heretics do to those weak of faith and and immature. You know what that looks like? Have you seen that? A young lady filled with desperation. Her sin having resulted in pregnancy. She thinks her life is over. She expects that, that folks will condemn her, banish her. But then... Someone that she trusts. Maybe a sweet lady that she looks up to. Maybe her worthless boyfriend says, you're not ready for that. Just get rid of it. No one will know. And, and you'll be better off. Everybody will be better off. Just, just do it. I know it's wrong for other people, but and they justify it and and assure her that this is the right path, that this is the way out of her dilemma, out of her heartache. But as soon as she embraces that wicked counsel, she finds that not only is it the way out of her heartache, it's the way to deepen her heartache and cause it to abide with her for the rest of her life. As she grieves the life that she has taken that had been entrusted to her to nurture How wicked to lead a a young lady, a desperate young lady in that way. But that's what these heretics do. Or a young man filled with confusion and shame because he's tempted by unnatural lust. He doesn't know how he's going to bear this temptation, but then an older man urges him, "Just, just be true to yourself. There's no shame, he says, in doing what comes natural. That's who you are. That's who God meant you to be. He urges him to identify himself by his lust, to identify himself by that sin. The young man is is convinced that that will solve his problem, only to learn that it ends up deepening his guilt and filling him with self-loathing. Or a businessman struggles with how how to make his business distinctly Christian in character. But then a, a trusted older man comes to him and says, what are you wrestling with all that for? The Bible's not meant as a handbook on business. That's not what it was for. The Bible's meant to get you to heaven. For business, well, God gave you common sense. Just use your common sense in running your business and keep your devotions at home. And the man is relieved. I don't have to wrestle with all that. I don't have to figure out how God's word applies. But as a result, his witness is stunted. And his guilt is cemented. We could multiply the examples a hundredfold. But what it comes down to is they speak winsomely. They comfort, or they bring comfort and the promise of refreshment 
But that comfort, that refreshment, it doesn't come by carefully applying God's word, but rather by ignoring what God's word says and calling them to do what feels right, to take the easy path, to walk down that trail that's wide and has no difficulties. They promise comfort, they assure them of relief, but what they deliver is a far deeper misery than the person had ever known. And it works. It works because they target those who are vulnerable. Verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Understand what he's saying. They boast. They express proud confidence of the path they've chosen. It's a tactic the wicked have used forever. The bigger the lie, the more bold you have to be in asserting it. We see it in politics all the time, right? But what are they promising? They're promising pleasure. They're promising something that in sin people always want anyway. We want what feels good. We want what feels easy. And so they promise that, but not just to anyone. They target those who are weak, those who are struggling with the sins that they've had to fight to get rid of, those who are new and are still unsure of all that the Bible teaches, those who are confused, not yet having been carefully discipled. They seek out the weak for their attack. And for those who listen, they silence the word of God. They rob them of their eternal hope. They alienate them from their heavenly Father. It is evil. Pure, unadulterated evil. And yet they sell that evil with the promise of freedom. Understand. They promise them freedom. But true freedom is only found in Christ. If it rests in men, it's a lie. It's not real freedom. If it stands opposed to God, children, hear this. If it stands opposed to God, it's not real freedom. It's a trap. And it's a trap that will enslave you. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? That's always the choice. We were made to be enslaved to someone. Either we will be enslaved to sin, which will destroy us in the end, or we will be slaves to Christ and to His righteousness, which will lead us to life and joy and fulfillment unending. Heretics, as servants of Satan and of his lies, heretics seek to deepen slavery. Slavery to sin. They don't want you to enjoy a beer. They want you to become dependent on the buzz. They don't want you to enjoy a good meal. They want you to live for feasting. They don't want you to delight in the wife of your youth. They want you to burn with passion for a multitude of women you can't have. They don't want you to shop carefully for what you need. They want you to drool for all of the things that you don't have. Satan and his heretical servants want you enslaved to your passions and they sell it to you with the promise of freedom. Freedom to to become what you desire. Freedom to do whatever delights you. Freedom to give yourself to all that your heart craves. That sales pitch surrounds us. I think the most egregious example of it today is 
the campaign for transgenderism. I just saw this morning on the MichiganMLive.com this story touting the uh, drag show in, uh, in Grand Rapids over the weekend. Touting, celebrating transgenderism. They sell it. How do they sell it? They find that person who, who's awkward and who feels out of place and they promise him freedom. Freedom from being alone and feeling misunderstood. Freedom from feeling like he's a freak that doesn't fit in anywhere. Freedom to be whatever he desires to be. Embrace, they say, embrace the true you that you have always imagined. Put it out there for everyone. But when they embrace that lie, when they embrace that lie, they find that they're incapable of reversing the changes that they have wrought. They find that they're unable to walk back the statements they've made and the bridges they burned. They find that instead of freedom, they've plunged themselves into misery, having enslaved themselves to rebellion against God. This is the slavery that Satan promotes and sells. A slavery that is embraced by the immature who lack the wisdom to see its full cost. A slavery that is promoted by politicians and entertainers who seek the praise of men. It's a slavery that is defended by wicked heretics even in the church. And they will answer for their wicked counsel in chains of gloomy darkness whether in the form of transgenderism or of any of the multitude of other lies. Those who embrace the lie are worse off at the end, says Peter, than they were at the start. Did they have some misery at the start? Absolutely. Listen, children, young people, understand this. We live in a broken world. We're wrestling against our old sinful natures. A degree of misery is inherent to that. There will be times when you don't feel like you fit in. There will be times when you feel like this is a mess and I just want out of it. The answer is never turning to sin. The answer is never rejecting what God says or the people who love God. That is the path to death. That is the path to destruction. And when you go down that path, it is incredibly hard to be drawn back. My friends, you have received a knowledge of the truth. Should you choose to reject the truth in favor of the lie, what hope will you find? And yet that's exactly what you would do if you believe there lies that there can be freedom apart from Christ, that there can be hope apart from the hope of God's Word, that there can be joy apart from the joy that comes in the salvation of Christ, whom we are to follow as our king. If you follow those lies, it would be better if you had never known the truth. But you do know. And through faith in Christ, you have escaped from your slavery to sin. So do not go back to that filth. Do not wallow back in that mire again. But instead, when you're tempted, when you hear the lies, turn to Christ. Rest in Him. Know that He is great enough. You don't have the strength to stand. But He does. And he can cause you to stand no matter how persuasive their lies, no matter how pervasive their temptations. And not only will he bring you through 
that dark period. Not only will he bring you through that moment of temptation, but ultimately, in the end, he will give you a joy and a hope and a, a life that is infinitely better than anything this world could offer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we so long for the perfection that is to come. But in the meantime, we find ourselves easily tempted by those who in their lies would promise us joy, would promise us freedom. Lord, help us to be discerning. Enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might see the truth and that we might reject the lie. Strengthen the hearts of the weak that they might stand strong and open the eyes of the strong that they might defend the weak. And so, Lord, glorify Yourself through Your body as You preserve and protect the lambs whom You deeply love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.